Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a keynote fireside discussion from the 2021 Craco Conference on volunteering for the Moderna vaccine trial, tackling racial disparities in healthcare, and beginning to build trust. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. So um, our presentation today, um, as Valerie said, we're, we're going to hear a little bit about um, Dr. Pornell's experience as well as uh, we're going to touch on, on um, what she does in her day-to-day -day work. Um, one of the things that I think we can all have, have appreciated from our pandemic experience, there have really been two things that have sort of risen to the forefront. One has really been a focus on clinical research and, and particularly relative to the, the vaccine clinical trials. Um, but the other that, that has really also is, is the disparities and, and the need for greater diversity in our clinical trials and, and looking at ways to, to really integrate and embed diverse populations in, in the work that, that we all do. So Dr. Purnell, welcome and really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Uh, maybe do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and you know, if you want to carry into your experience with the Moderna vaccine trial, that would be great. Sure. Good morning, everyone. Really a great opportunity um, to be before you this morning and to have what I hope to be um, an interactive and informative dialogue. So I am a public health and preventive medicine physician by training, and I am the first ever Chief Strategic Integration and Health Equity Officer here at University Hospital in Newark. This office is responsible for helping the hospital to launch a more robust and comprehensive health equity strategy, and is looking at that health equity strategy actually across three buckets or work streams, looking at patients, clinical populations, looking at our community that we serve. We're situated in the beautiful um, complex city of Newark, New Jersey, um, and looking at our workers also as a population whose health equity needs need to be met and looking for ways to drive equity and inclusion across all business units and within the system. So it is a very exciting role. Um, in addition to this office being responsible for that strategy development and execution, this office also has oversight over the human experience, which many know as the patient experience, uh, community affairs, population health and strategic planning. So it's a very um, full role uh, and an opportunity to avail uh, my skill set and to deliver on equity mandates, equity imperatives in a city that feels very much like my hometown and my backyard. I grew up in the city next door, East Orange, New Jersey. So you can imagine a lot of the beginning of my time here um, has been defined by this unprecedented public health crisis and pandemic that we're still in. Um, I joined the organization in November 2019 and was almost immediately thrown into planning. Uh, we are the state's only public academic health center. So uh, we do uh, lots of regional planning uh, or we serve a role around um, emergency preparedness and things of that nature. So a lot of the beginning parts of this role even was built around 
the early days of just understanding what SARS-CoV-2 was um, and what would become this COVID-2019 pandemic. Then we find ourselves in the spring, March and April, in the throes of the epicenter of the pandemic at that time. And you can imagine that nearly every bed in our hospital um, was was filled by a person struggling with or fighting against coronavirus and too often losing their lives. Um, we lost um, in total to date 12 staff members to coronavirus. So it definitely has impacted our organization and our staff like so many other frontline um, and essential workers have been heroic in providing the best quality care and a fast um, paced environment where data recommendations and guidance was quickly changing. We as an organization and in particular in this office had to be able to navigate those waters. How do you um, look out for the well-being of your staff, of your worker population? People had been reassigned. Uh, you know, some people were moving into the virtual space. A lot of our workers were still here uh, on campus offering uh, holistic needs uh, or, or, or resources for those holistic needs, as well as how do you communicate with patients? How do you communicate with community about what's happening? And especially when loved ones were separated from their families. Uh, many have described it as like a fog of war. Uh, it is something that I won't forget. And at the time that that was happening and I was leading in this organization, my father was struggling with coronavirus in a hospital four miles away. Um, my father had gone into the hospital for an unrelated condition and got exposed to coronavirus while they are very early days of the pandemic. And my father ultimately succumbed to the virus. And so a lot of what I was dealing with with families or with patients or with staff, I faced personally. So I like to explain to people, not only was New Jersey or not only was Newark the epicenter of this pandemic, my life was the epicenter of this pandemic. Um, there is a stat that says that black women are 2.5 times more likely to know someone who's lost their life to this pandemic. And I am um, the, the lived experience of that stat. Um, in addition to losing my dad, I've lost two cousins, one who was also an essential worker, a postal worker here in Newark, New Jersey. And my sister is a COVID-19 long hauler. So my family has definitely been disproportionately impacted as has been the black and brown community because of the collision of this unprecedented public health crisis and the, the pandemic of systemic racism. So in the backdrop of all of that, of losing my dad, my sister being a long hauler, of our hospital going through an unprecedented public health crisis, I needed a way to solution um, and to be a part of the ultimate solution to get safe, stay safe, and beat back this pandemic. And being a public health physician, I believe in public health um, and prevention science. So I enrolled in the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine trials. Um, it was a decision that I went into with a lot of singular focus and purpose. Um, I did the best homework you could do at the time. I looked at early phase um, trial results. I um, spoke with the principal investigator. Um, it was never involuntary. It was always voluntary. Informed consent was upheld. All of my questions were answered. I had a conversation with my family, and I thought this was the best way to live forward my father's legacy. Wow. 
what an amazing, what an amazing journey. And what do you, what do you see as, as key? I mean, I, I, I won't, I think it's obvious the, the why you did it, but what did you take away? What were some of the, the key learnings from that whole experience? Definitely. You know, it was important for me to be a part of this trial also to demonstrate accountability. And the way that I was able to demonstrate accountability is in going to the public, going to community. We were looking for multimodal, socially and culturally fluent and responsive ways to get information out to community in a very troublesome time, information that was rapidly changing. And that as we were on the horizon of finding a tool of having vaccines in our toolkit to prevent uh, this, this severe disease from causing further devastation, uh, I knew that community whether because of the, the nature of the pandemic itself or whether because of past experiences that they may have had in healthcare and or clinical research or because of historical injustices would need a firsthand eyewitness account. And this became a vehicle. This became an opportunity to demonstrate accountability and to, dem and to give a window into the process. I was very open around the process helping to under helping community to understand what is conformed consent what is meant yeah. by informed consent what does ethical research look like um what what are are the important uh what are the important what is the importance i should say of having a diverse uh population participate in yeah. these study trials and being able to help translate that for community it wasn't always easy in the beginning we did have some who were vocally opposed to the trials being hosted here on our campus, uh, but it presented an opportunity to have a more robust, full throttle, bi-directional dialogue with community mm -hmm. so that we move away from this transactional nature around clinical research, around academic medicine and healthcare more broadly to say, to see community as partner, to share power and information as power, and to ultimately set this as a platform where community can, can become a co-researcher. And I think from a pharma perspective, that's one we're we're struggling with to a certain extent. The have to do it versus the the should do it, uh, because it just makes sense. And and your journey is definitely a, a personal one. Um, what do you find yourself doing differently or more forcefully as as a result of your? I mean, you've had a lot of very deep personal, you yeah. know, both the relatedness to the community as well as your your family situation. Um, what do you find yourself doing differently? Communicate early and communicate often. <laughs> That's a mantra that I brought into this role, um, a mantra that I've developed throughout my, my public health practice, but a mantra that um, I've tried to keep at the forefront because of even when um, I thought we were being communicative as an organization. Communities still had deeper needs, and those deeper needs were rested in those disparate experiences that people have had, um, whether uh, in healthcare specifically or thinking through a historical lens around the, the, the experience of clinical research. So ensuring that we're not going to community when we have fully cooked ideas. Mm -hmm. that we're giving community a seat at the table to have a deeper understanding and hence investment in the process itself, um, beginning to manage expectations about what would be next, 
what was coming and how we communicate. Are we communicating in health literate, in socially and culturally fluent? You hear me say that a lot. Um, and what I mean when I say socially and culturally fluent terms is communicating with the understanding of someone's lived experience, um, communicating with the understanding of a population's history, communicating with the understanding of identified needs, um, priorities, and not only communicating, but taking that communication as the beginning and then pivoting to um, strategizing and mm -hmm. from those strategizing to actually executing on action plans. So this was also an opportunity for community to learn what's the value of clinical research and where black and brown groups in particular have benefited from clinical research in the past because of disproportionate prevalence rates of certain conditions. And yet again, I found myself returning to my personal story. Um, I lost my dad, as I explained, during this pandemic. My father was 78 years old. My father had a host of chronic health conditions. My father lived with HIV AIDS. And I was able to share the experience that that became a chronic infection and not an immediate death sentence because mm -hmm. of the benefits of clinical research. So helping community to translate and to decipher the role of the, the, the ethical role, the mm -hmm. proper role, the just role, um, the socially and culturally fluent role that clinical research can play and the need for us to, when we're looking through that health equity framework, to say we perpetuate an inequity if clinical research opportunities are not made available to all groups, in particular groups who have been historically excluded. Yeah. And what advice would you give to, to folks within the community that are considering uh, participating in a clinical trial? Ask all the questions that you have. <laughs> Ask all the questions that you have. Um, what I find is even now that we are further along in the clinical trial process, we've had several candidates, three in particular in the United States, to go through the emergency use authorization process ask all the questions that you have. Because when people don't have a vehicle, a transparent and authentic vehicle to have their information needs met and their information needs met through trusted messengers, um, circulating a message through a trusted network, I find that that misinformation can, can form a wedge. Um, can, can form a wedge, which then solidifies an inequity. So helping um, community to unearth and to surface what those questions are, um, having conversation from a non-judgmental place, um, having the conversation from practicing cultural humility, I'll say, yeah. understanding and validating someone's concerns and then being able to say, okay, I hear your concerns, and this is what the data and the science show us. I hear your concerns, and this, and owning up to the history that's in demonstrating that accountability. We yeah. must, in academic medicine, we must, in healthcare, and we must, in clinical research, demonstrate trustworthiness so that persons, groups, and communities can then build trust. Yeah. So earning, earning the trust, I think that's, uh, that's a critical, critical piece. I think you, you touched on it earlier in your comments. You, for far too long, we've been transactional. 
yeah. you know, we need X number of patients. So we descend on a community and, and, you know, once, you know, where, where'd you go? You know, once the work is done, you know, that, that quick departure. So, so really, I mean, I, I think, you know, you touched on such key elements in terms of, of just building and earning that trust as, as being a member of the community rather than it being a, a quick transaction. Yeah, and can I just add one other quick point to that because I just sure, heard please. something else for me when you said that. One of the early concerns that we heard, um, and I wanna, when I say communicate early and communicate often, we did, wow, multiple virtual engagements where we interacted with hundreds of stakeholders and community um, from various faith-based groups, um, from various community-based organizations. We used Facebook Lives. We partnered with others. We joined the Newark mayor on his Facebook Live. What it was important for community to understand, and this is particularly true in black and brown communities and groups who have been historically excluded, they needed to understand they weren't being targeted. They weren't, and, and, and I say that intentionally because clinical research in its language, um, clinical research in developing um, a cultural literacy or fluency um, has to understand, I heard frequently in this community, you're targeting black communities, you're targeting urban communities, you wanna try this out here, but helping people to understand, no, there were nearly um, 90 plus uh, sites for Moderna across the United States happening in diverse geographic regions, some urban, some suburban, some rural, um, happening in diverse um, populations, diverse by race and ethnicity, diverse by clinical history, um, diverse by age. We need to give community the entire picture mm -hmm. so that they can see where they appear and where they stand in the full complement of, of what's happening. And the more we were able to have that dialogue, I mean, literally repeating or reiterating sometimes the same things over and over, you saw, you saw perceptions change. You saw where sometimes there was concern, not necessarily that it evaporated, but that people had a context to put the concern within. And that's yeah. what I'm talking about when I say demonstrating trustworthiness. Yeah. And what do you what do you see are some of the big and small things you know, coming from a sponsor perspective? What can pharma or, or study sponsors do differently to, to really garner that trust and build that that kind of um, that, that fluency that you're talking about? Definitely. Um, so uh, I'll do big and small. So big is sponsor and site development, um, where opportunities are presenting, because what we also know, the inequity in and of itself is that there is a barrier around participation in clinical research, oftentimes um, for black and brown groups. And those barriers um, can be related to various components of access, whether it's information, do people understand um, the opportunity? Um, do Is the opportunity communicated in a fluent way with messengers who um, hold value in community? Um, do, community, do community members understand the totality of the process of clinical research? I think there's a fair amount of education that can happen before there's a specific trial, before yep. there's a specific trial about this is, and these are the benefits of clinical research. Um, and 
the diversity among sponsor sites. That's something that we had a deep conversation about here in this community in York, how that in and of itself was helping to dismantle and disrupt the inequity that here in Newark, you could have an opportunity to participate in groundbreaking research because you have Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, um, premier research institution. You have investigators who have built connections and relationship with community. I think that's something to consider when looking at sponsors, when looking at sites, when looking at principal investigators, what, what record of community engagement has there been? So that's that big, right? And then the small is, um, I would say it would be um, not necessarily um, on the level of pharma, but on the level of the principal investigator, on the level of the healthcare organization, making sure that you're engaging community. I mean, I've said this before and I'll say it again in the most honest fashion, not just when you need something, um, but engaging community just to learn about community, engaging community and, and elevating, um, mm -hmm. amplifying uh, community priorities as, de as defined in the voice of community itself. Um, and then saying, are there opportunities are there opportunities for investigators, for um, academic medical centers to devise projects where community is co-researcher? And, you know, again, shifting back to community, what do you see as some of the most urgent needs, you know, and certainly from your practice, I'm sure you're, you're living it on a daily basis, but, but what do you see as some of the key needs, you know, both in general, but but really, uh, since we're focusing on clinical research from a clinical trial perspective. No, definitely. So um, I'll talk about the macro picture because I'm, I'm a public health physician. So I do a lot um, in the social determinants of health space. Um, and in that social determinants of health space, looking at those non-clinical structural factors and determinants that shape influence um, health outcomes and health status. Um, as a person who works in this health equity space, um, you hear frequently from community uh, that they want to be viewed equally. Um, and I say that and I pause because I know what that feels like as a person of color, a woman, a black woman, um, who's also been a patient, wanting to feel valued in your humanity. Mm -hmm. And feeling valued in your humanity um, necessarily begins with feeling heard. Feeling heard begins with opportunities to share. Mm -hmm. Opportunities to share is predicated on the principle and the understanding that you have something important to say. And so I frequently hear from community, these are, and, and this is something we're going through right now in our community health needs assessment, these are the health conditions, these are the social conditions, um, these are the political conditions that matter. And I think it's even important for those, not only in academic medicine, but those in clinical research to be aware of that full complement of needs. Because otherwise, research 
comes across as purely transactional. And when I say if you're aware of those full complements of needs, you understand what potential participants in research are grappling with. If you're grappling with issues around housing, if you're grappling with issues around food insecurity, if you're grappling with issues around implicit bias and care, it is harder to understand the value of research. So I think it is important for clinical research to acknowledge and to validate the larger, the larger table that community members sit at and saying, given that larger table that you sit at, this is the part that I serve, this is the part that I work in, and this is how I demonstrate equity in this particular part. Community wants to hear that you understand the full table, even if you aren't responsible for the full table. And I guess one one question, and I know this is not on our script, but how do you, you know, the the patients that kind of fly under the radar that, Mm -hmm. you know, particularly are, are, greatly impacted by the social determinants. Um, they're not even in in the line, so to speak, yes. you know, in terms of you, we don't see them because they don't have insurance or, you know, they're, they're resistant to any kind of uh, intervention from healthcare. What do you see as some strategies or tactics we could, you know, invest in or should invest in, quite honestly? I love to use the term prevention army. And when I say prevention army, I'm, I'm thinking about community health workers. So University Hospital being a public academic health center, um, we serve all in the population. So we we often see those people who otherwise fly under the radar. Um, they u- utilize our emergency room um, because they have compelling social needs that are driving them um, to present, whether it is housing instability or experiencing homelessness or food insecurity um, coming into the emergency department really as a place to say, I need help. And that clinical presentation and symptomology oftentimes being intricately um, woven into that I need help. Um, So having robust um, programs that can target these various different social determinants of health needs, like for instance, um, you know, we have programs around supportive housing, we have programs around food insecurity, but our community health workers, and we use a specific model here of community healthcare chaplains, have been a very trusted and valuable partner in helping community, especially those with complex social, medical, and behavioral needs, navigate the care process um, and to, um, let's say, on, on parallel and integrated tracks, deal with those social determinants of health needs while dealing with those clinical needs. I oftentimes say, how can we use community health workers in clinical research? Mm-hmm. How can we use community health workers to help educate, to help inform, um, to, be a, to be that person who can be a navigator through the clinical research process? And that's how you unearth some of those other people who would fly under the radar otherwise. Great. That's really great. So I know we just have a few minutes. Time time really does fly. Yes, with it goes really quick. Conversations. <laughs> um, so we have a question from the audience. Um, Jean Spasaro, one of my colleagues at, at BMS, uh, sent a question. What were your biggest hurdles in minimizing the fears of the community during such a scary time for all while seeking to build back the trust of the people we are morally and ethically expected to serve? That's a great question. Excellent question. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. Um, Information was changing 
such a fast pace um, and it felt to community at times that they were getting conflicting advice, they were getting conflicting guidance. And so when you feel like you're getting conflicting advice, you don't know where the true is. Right, like what's true, true, <laughs> and, and, right. and so helping managing expectations around in an unprecedented public health crisis, we are learning. Um, it doesn't mean that we aren't still guided by scientific principles, that we still aren't following the data, but we are learning. And the more we learn, the more the data and the science is refined, and the better and more accurate we get um, at the body of information that we make available to people. So helping to manage that understanding that this is going to be a journey. Yeah. This is going to be a journey of discovery. Um, at times, we won't know with certainty, but we'll, we, we will know in the most informed fashion and helping community to understand what that means. That level of veracity, that level of transparency um, is the part of demonstrating trustworthiness. T say what you know and also say what you don't know and say yeah. the process that you're going to undertake to learn it. And that's how you demonstrate um, ethical behavior. That's how you demonstrate moral behavior. I would hear that frequently um, from community. Okay, doc, I feel like I can trust you um, because not only are you putting yourself on the line, you're giving me a context mm -hmm. by which to understand and decipher everything that's coming at me. And what we started to see about the, um, the, the spring into the summer even as the, the pandemic was ebbing here in North New Jersey, people were still fearful to come into the hospital. So yep. we had to go into hyperdrive. How do we communicate a sense of assurance, a safety? What are the ways that we communicate that? And that was from as basic as us flipping out our, our, our cameras, walking around the hospital, showing community the steps we were taking to keep people safe, yeah. um, helping them to understand what physical distancing or social distancing meant, helping them to understand what it meant to cohort patients in a, in a hospital, and helping them to understand that their health needs didn't stop. So we had Care Around the Clock, and Care Around the Clock was a social marketing public health campaign to say, we are here to serve your health care needs around the clock, whether those are emergent needs or whether those are maintenance needs. Making it tangible, which is great. Yes. This is really great. Well, I think we're just about coming due. Is there anything else that you would want to want to share from from your experience, um, you know, or even things for us to take away? Don't forget what we learned in this process. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you.